Welcome to The Bridge, fun conversations on culture, life, and everything in between. Welcome to The Bridge. We are a show that connects East and West. My name is Jason, and I'm originally from California, but living here in beautiful Wuhan, China. Today with me is Alex. Hello, I am Alex Schur. I am from the beautiful, also Northeast part of China, and I'm speaking to all of you today in Beijing, China. Find us where you get your podcasts. If you like the show, then consider pushing the like button or giving us five stars. Suggestions, comments, anything you would like to share, email us at welovethebridge at gmail.com. We love the bridge. I want to talk about culture and heritage and intangible cultural heritage about China. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I am a Western person. I, am, I was born and raised in the United States. So I'm hoping you can fill in my uh, some of the spaces that are missing in my knowledge about China and tell me about my generalizations and my misconceptions. <laughs> I'll, I'll try my best. <laughs> I'll try to answer to all the interpretations that don't really make sense to what I know. Well, I also don't expect you to be an expert because, you know, I don't know all about cowboys. So <laughs> um, let me think about some questions about cowboys. Because, you know, if someone were to like, oh, wow, you're from America and they want to know about like the history of America. They're like, well, what are muskets like? How do muskets work? Is that how what was like the Civil War? Like, I'm going to what are you? I don't know. What do yeah. Do we watch the same movie? Maybe <laughs> just confess when we were doing our weekly trivia question as the only Chinese person, you would expect me to know the answers to all of the Chinese questions and some. Sometimes I really don't. Most of the times I really don't. My friends did. My friends uh, that are not a, not Chinese, they seem to know more about the trivial stuff in Chinese history than I do. So I'll certainly work on that. And hopefully today we could sort of salvage my reputation. I actually took a history of China class and I have a few books on the history of China and I've read them. Mm -hmm. And every time I finish reading them, I feel like I didn't learn anything. Chinese history is so long. There are so many different parts and so many different people playing so many different roles in so many different ways that I think I could read 100 books and not really have a basic framework for what happened. Probably. <laughs> not to discourage you. It's just been too, it's been a long time, you know. Obviously, let's start with the physical stuff. There are a ton of temples throughout China and just in Beijing alone, there must be hundreds of different, like between Taoism and Buddhism yeah. and even Christian churches and, and mosques. Yeah, too. you know, like I've been, I, I'm, I moved here with my parents in 2005 and you would think that after all these years, years you would have at least known about all the places that all the temples and stuff but like I just I like look at the maps on my phone when I'm not doing anything I don't know why I like doing that I'm just doing that I just randomly find out that there are other temples that I didn't know big or small but there's always I've always managed to see new temples or like a new you know kind of those like ancient tombs uh tomb sites that you could go visit mm. it's it's still popping up it's a lot of places that I don't think you could exhaust the temples and the cultural yeah heritage spots that you could visit in Beijing. I think in Beijing, maybe if you spent like a decade, right? But, you know, that's just one city. Then like you have like all of China. And so there's no way like any one person has been to like even a portion of all of the just Taoist or just Buddhist or or just like, you know, some some temple structures are not Taoist or Buddhist. They're like kind of like more independent. I forget the term, but it's like a oh, there's a term for when someone is uh, associating with like a ancient kind of religious practice that's not um, specifically associated with a particular religion. 
Anyways, there's also you have the Great Wall, uh-huh. which is a physical structure yes. that is preserved by the nation, yes. by this by the state. And then you also have individual city walls. Beijing has a city wall, which is not the Great Wall. And then you have Xi'an City Wall and Nanjing City Wall. And, and we have them here, too, in gates and city walls here in Wuhan. I mean, there are a couple, how do you call those, sections of city walls from different dynasties in Beijing. And I think I've only done one walk along one of those and it didn't yeah and apparently if you walk along it could, you could go on a four hour really beautiful walk really yeah like if you follow it all the way through and you count the parts that you could barely see it but it's still there um this again oh my god i just realized jason i am not a very good person of the city this was informed <laughs> by another american friend as well i have never personally walked all the way from you know beginning to end of that city well but my friend did and he told me that it was a really nice one. well Beijing is huge it's just colossal and if you just wanted to watch walk the spine of Beijing they call it so like you have the Tianmen and south of there yes. and walking to Tianmen through the palace museum up through the parks and it just keeps going like whole north south section of the city that would take mm. you an entire day or potentially more if you were stopping if, to yeah. like learn about each part and then each yeah. city has its own kind of palace museum like there's the palace museum in Beijing but a lot of other cities held capitals at different times. And this is interesting. We're just starting off talking about the physical infrastructure of China's ancient history. Mm-hmm. But that's not actually where I want to go with this. I okay. want to talk about ha- customs. So I was on the UN Intangible Cultural Heritage site. And I just I just copied down some of some notes about some of the traditions that have been saved Mm. by UNESCO that are intangible cultural heritage. So I want to start off with one called Juswan, or it's the knowledge and practices of mathematical calculation through the abacus. Yes, the abacus. We had to learn that. I don't know if kids still do that now, but we did learn that in primary school. Yeah. So you know how to use an abacus. Yeah. We had to learn how to, because there's one on the top. And then there's a separator under in the uh, lower section, there's four. So when you count, you go one, two, three, four. And once it, it becomes four, you pluck down the four to the bottom. And then the one in the bottom to the separator, that's a five. So it's the kind of the way how I think it comes from how we used to count days or how mm-hmm. we used to count in general. You know, there's a character in Chinese called Zheng, which means like upright. Mm-hmm. And Zheng has five strokes. You know how people um, in the West usually they do four vertical bars and then they cross it with one horizontal bar. Yeah. For Chinese people, when we used to count votes, we just write the character Zheng because it's just four strokes. It's either a a horizontal stroke or a vertical stroke. There's no other direction that it's going. So you just look at how many Zhengs there are. Um, And so the abacus way of counting had something to do with that for sure because it also counts on the base uh, counts on the base of fives and then we have to learn we had to learn how to read from the abacus because it's not 
it's not like it doesn't say one, two, three, four. It doesn't say beyond six. So you have to know how to how to read that. And we learned that in, I think, the first maybe two, three years in primary school. But it, it was it, it, they stopped. I it. didn't understand, <laughs> but that's OK. <laughs> I think that's normal. My grandmother gave me one when she was like, you need to learn how to use this. And I was like, OK. And then she left me. I've seen it used in movies, but like I have no idea how to use it. She knew how to use it. No, she didn't know how to use it. She was just like, you oh, need to, wanted you to. You should learn how to use this thing. And then she left me with the thing i have no idea what it is for me it's like a, a toy with wooden things that move around i mean it is a good thing to if you just walk around, if you're a tiny if you were a tiny kid a toddler walking around the house just shaking the abacus you would probably annoy your parents to know the joy of having sound. children <laughs> i know i was on that note just very quickly i was looking for uh birthday gifts for my friend's baby and i was just going on jd Taobao and looking at the different kits for th- uh sorry toys for kids that are from three mm. to six years old and then i looked at it, i was like i could easily tell that this toy designer does not have children because the toy that i saw was a bluetooth microphone speaker for three-year-olds i'm like what have you been around three-year-olds they do not need us the last thing they need on this earth is to have a microphone that's also a bluetooth speaker that is going to amplify their already loud noise wow anyways that was scary scary i know (laughs) oh The best military commander is not he who fights a hundred battles and wins every one of them. The best military strategy does not lead to the desiccation of the enemy's capital city. Decoding the art of war will help you understand why there's no art in war and how Sun Tzu stayed undefeatable using the science of war with fun stories and insightful breakdown of famous battles. Tune in to Decoding the Art of War on Spotify. You're listening to The Bridge. I have a question. So you know basically how to use an abacus. Yes. So does that help you with like <laughs> mental arithmetic? I guess when I was a kid, I did. Because like I said, it's different from how you are learning math. It's a different approach to numbers and calculations. So as a kid, if you're learning that, I think they were trying to wire your mind in a little bit of a different mm. way. So, I mean, it didn't help with my math. I was so horrible <laughs> at math after I entered high school. But I think it was... I've, if I had stuck with it, probably that'll be a little different because that's kind of like, like I said, because you could only show in each one of those sticks on the abacus, it only shows up to five because there are five uh, pearls on it. You know, the pearls that you mm-hmm. pluck up and down. There's only five. Mm. So after five, then you have to count uh, six, seven, eight. So it's kind of like the Roman numbers mm-hmm. as well. So you have to, uh, uh, yeah. yeah, you know, so I guess it definitely works your brain in a different way. And then especially like, I only know how to do addition and deduction i don't know how to do multiply and and division you can do multiplication and division on this it's not just for addition and subtraction yeah people there are people who know how to do it uh but it's probably just, you know, it's probably like they do a really quick, you but know. This is not normal. Like every child in China goes to learn to use an abacus. Am I wrong? Not anymore. I don't think kids are learning this like in school. Everybody's learning, learning it. We were probably the last generation that had the chance to learn it in school. 
Because it's just not, you know, with calculators and <laughs> computers, it's just not as necessary. But like I said, because of the system of calculation, it's mm. it's a different logic. It's a different, uh, it's a different, uh, you know, way of thinking about things. So. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's why, because we were talking about cultural heritage, and one of the mm. one of the standards or one of the criteria of counting of looking at something and say that we're going to uh, include that as part of a cultural heritage is that if it mm, mm. if you know if it contains it preserves you know historical values, and that was definitely like so you were taught this to preserve traditional cultural values. That was the purpose of your learning abacus as a child. I could imagine that's what the education bureau was thinking but as Mm -hmm. when i was part of it as a six-year-old i didn't care (laughs) (laughs) you're just like okay let me do this So I want to talk about another one. This is a strategy for training coming gener. This is not just Fujian puppetry, mm. but it's actually the cultural heritage that was preserved is the strategy for training coming generations yeah. of Fujian puppetry practitioners. Very specific. So like, I guess the way that they teach how to do it is it in itself, the cultural heritage. I think that's really interesting. And it just on its own. Yeah, because a lot of the performing arts uh, forms that are part of the uh, intangible and uh, cultural and heritage are kind of all passed on with this master mm. apprentice kind of relationship. And in that relationship itself, there's a lot of very important like traditional values that are kind of unique to Chinese history and Chinese culture um, and that becomes an integral part of what that art mm. is like for example the the art of crosstalks like Xiangsheng like two people talking on on stage mm-hmm. it is a, a language performing art but you know the whole relationship of who's your which school you follow who's your master uh, who's your you know not your coach it's a coach is just n- not the word you know that person you call shifu mm-hmm. is kind of like your guide. mentor. mentor. Yeah, mentor. your guide, your mentor, but also kind of like your parent. Not just learn the craft from them. You also learn how they treat the craft and how they mm. maintain maintain their personality, just themselves as a human being when they exist in the context mm. of this art form. It's not just, oh, I know how to do this. Like we could open like a chef, what do you call that? A culinary school mm-hmm. and teach mm-hmm. everybody how to do it. Mm. It's kind of in in a certain way, in a little bit of what it's a little bit like a religion. Like you have to believe mm. in what you're doing and you believe in the value of it. Cause like 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 abacus if you you don't believe in the value of it there's no way you're going to touch that thing because it doesn't make sense practically mm. now in the mm. world we live in today well yeah i'm actually reminded of like a master carpenter like journeyman kind of relationship in europe has you know similar practice where a young boy often would be like given off to a master carpenter mm. and basically be raised in their family to learn carpentry so that when they grow up that they could also be a practice of like all of the art that is held within it so similar maybe a little bit yeah probably i think it's like i said i think this is this should be the model of our show we're basically talking about all the differences in different parts of the world Mm. mainly china and the united states and then we realize that we have really a lot more in common Mm -hmm. than we realize the next one i think is more interesting to me personally because i recently underwent it but 
but acupuncture and moxibustion. Mm. Uh, so acupuncture is one of those things that's done around the world now, like yeah. probably everywhere. Like a lot of if, if you were in Los Angeles, you could go get acupuncture like tomorrow if you wanted. Mm. So I actually underwent acupuncture like, I don't know. 10 times in the last month. That's kind of intense, it was, no? It was very intense. And some of the practices I feel must be relatively modern that were done on me mm. because they electrified it. What? So, yeah, yeah, because uh, I hurt my neck and I had uh, was having spasms as a constant, like small jerking motions uh-huh. as a consequence of the pain. And so they weren't just doing acupuncture on me. Mm. Some of the acupuncture they would they put electrodes on. I want to say that's the right word. I don't know. <laughs> and they were sending pulses of electricity. So I was twitching oh. like in time with the electrical pulse. The doctor was saying that this is to regulate my, uh, you know, spasms so that my body would learn not to spasm. Eventually the spasms did go away. <laughs> that sounds I was like actually in sense. a lot of pain, not because just because of the acupuncture, because I was in pain. Uh-huh. And so after they stuck all the needles in me and I was pulsing with electricity, I was kind of hunched over and like this, like, uh, uh. and it felt like a little like torture to me, but not because, oh, no. not because of the acupuncture itself, but because it was like causing a, a, a tiny spasm. And my, uh. my wife was there you know, the whole time she's such a sweetheart. She stayed with me the entire mm. through the entire process. And I, I looked up at her while she was filming me <laughs> and I said, whatever I've done, I'm so sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Can we please make that video available <laughs> to at least to our listeners? We I would love to see. I need to see that. I mean, that's the whole reason why she stayed in the room with you. So she can take that video. I love that. I love moments like that. But, but was this your first encounter with acupuncture uh, yeah i mean i hadn't had any no no that's not true i was in beijing one time i was oh. going to meet with my wife's uncle and he was like oh i've become quite a good at acupuncture and he, he before we went to eat to dine he was like pull up your shirt and i was like okay so he stuck a bunch of needles in my stomach Let me, oh area. my god not into the organ but into the, but the <laughs> tissue right my, my fatty tissue on the and i said what's this for and after he got all the needles in he said this will help you lose weight oh my god but does he have the license to to, to I don't know this. I don't know but it, it didn't oh, but you just you know I think it's just a test it's like this guy is this American guy going to accept our family <laughs> <laughs> to the max and this is my ultimate test on this guy and if he says yes then it's good <laughs> anyways uh it, it didn't hurt at all you know the acupuncture it, the, sticking the needles in to my back muscles hurt very briefly for like mm. tenth of a second and then after the needle was in there you you almost don't even notice it I I only tried it once I have you have you had it? You have what? What did you have it for? It was recommended by a friend who was going there kind of on a regular basis. Um, I went because well, I have a constant sleeping problem. Uh, I dream a lot, so mm. I'm always tired when I wake up, and mm. sometimes have trouble sleeping. Wow. Yeah, I'm. I, I guess I'm just worried about really important issues for the world, and I have too much on my brain, mm. in my brain, on my shoulder. Um, no, I, I had I had that problem, and mm. um, basically I lied down on my left, and he put needles on my ankle, my mm. side part of my knee. I remember. Yeah, you told me this before. I think yeah, so. Yeah, I show. think we talked about this. And then, of course, on my face mm. as well. One time of acupuncture is not going to have a significant mm. effect mm. on whatever problem you have. And I only went once. <laughs> I guess after that session, because you have to let the needles stay on you for 45 minutes. And during that 45 minutes, you're just lying down there quietly. And he asks you to 
very specifically close your eyes. Do not leave your eyes open during that 45 minutes because you have to seal every outlet of your body so mm. that the needles could do their work. After that 45 minutes rest, I did feel pretty good, but the sleeping problems were not really alleviated because I didn't go back. Mm-mm. Did they heal you? I'm, I can't tell the entire story because it's really long. It would take the, our entire episode. episode yeah. <laughs> but um, I had a, a disc that had cracked in my neck. It's called a cervical disc, which I found confusing because Ow. I always thought cervix is somewhere else. Anyways, so you, so the, you have <laughs> your spinal column, you have above your rib cage that uh-huh. are not, not connected to your ribs are called your cervical discs. And one of yeah. them cracked open and it, it leaked out the jelly stuff that's inside and it pushed on my nerve. It was, hurt, was pressing on my nerve and I went to see a, a doctor at a huge hospital, very reputable general hospital. We went to a specialist and that specialist said the only way to deal with this was to have surgery to remove the disc. And he was, they were going to have to remove the disc from inside my spinal column. Mm. And he said there was a one or 2% chance I could end up in a wheelchair permanently. And that's probably a three or four months of recovery time. He said I could start to maybe walk in two or three or four weeks, but that would start to walk and it would take intense physical. So we were like, okay, let's go somewhere else and get another opinion. So we went to a traditional Chinese hospital, not just some roadside acupuncture. Okay, so <laughs> like a le- le- very legitimate yeah. with the license. A huge, massive hospital with several floors and like dozens of doctors inside, registered yeah. medical doctors mm-hmm. who were also acupuncturists and, and did traditional Chinese medicine. And we saw one doctor and he gave us some physical therapy. Mm-hmm. And I wasn't really getting that much better, actually. I felt like I wasn't recovering. So we went to see a different uh, doctor in the same hospital. And that doctor, MD, you know, he, he gave mm-hmm. me uh, some Chinese traditional medicine and I recovered within a week or two. Sometimes these things are just, it's kind of like magic, I guess, because because it's been, I mean, we, we will have an episode talking about traditional Chinese medicine. <laughs> I don't want to go into all the details, but they, because they have been in, you know, people have been practicing it or receiving it in China mm-hmm. for thousands of years. And that's way before science. So <laughs> I know a lot <laughs> yeah. of it. It's like, oh, we don't, we can't really yeah. put, you know, put a finger well, on Well, I mean, it. some of this has been tested by science too. Yeah, but it's yeah. such a, it's such a massive medical science subject it's so Mm, big mm, mm. it's hard to you know test everything and that's why some parts of it are not really clearly understood as to why Mm, it mm, works mm. that way what's really nice is i am not going to have to have surgery and you know this is not just like oh i feel great we actually did an mri and like it got better yeah i'm i'm pretty much recovered i'm i still feel like i need to be safe with my uh spine safer than before yeah please do always i don't want (laughs) to re-injure the same area or whatever but uh i i feel great so uh it yeah for those of you who are wondering if you can seek out traditional chinese medicine do so you know it maybe it won't work for you and maybe you will have to resort to other means but at least give it a try you know yeah and it's also like if you really look into it this this is part of the reason why traditional chinese medicine is part of the 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 cultural heritage of china it really carries the kind of, you know, the result, the fruit of the civilization from different time periods in in Chinese history. And you'll know that from the ingredients that they want you to use, like, for example, when my 
um, when uh, my mom's family tried to fix our stomach problems, like the things that they wanted us to eat were like, well, apparently that was very popular back then, but it's not popular now, which is why it doesn't make sense for us to eat that now. Mm. And then the Mm. whole, it's just kind of a living exhibition of how people survived all Mm. of these Mm. years. Mm. And that's kind of the charm of it. And that's why the, you know, the Chinese government and um, other cultural heritage protection organizations would really love to promote this. I I should also mention that I, I, uh, there were other aspects to it. There were like elixirs I was given to drink that taste terrible. You know, like a traditional Chinese medicine teas oh. that I also needed to brew on a daily basis. That was part of it. it wasn't just acupuncture. Oh, and yeah. also we did have, and this is part of the uh, article, moxibustion, which is, they only did this to me once, but they put this wooden box on my back. And inside they put a smoke, mugwort leaves smoke. And (laughs) then they exposed my back to this while the Chinese, the Chinese name of that is a lot more. um, What is it? What is it? Pleasing to the year. It's called Ai Jiu. Ai Jiu. (laughs) Doesn't it sound so much more beautiful? Mug Sebastian. (laughs) Mug Sebastian. Yeah, it's um, the herb that we use not just for treating your body like what they say is because i've done it but at a spa place not at a traditional chinese mes- no, restaurant what they say is that help get the heat into your skin mm-hmm. and drive out the cold but it's also a very useful or kind type of herb in summer to drive away mosquitoes oh yeah yeah like you burn if you're sitting outside i am you- like the most delicious person to mosquitoes <laughs> i know like if there's 10 of us sitting around like hanging out outside <laughs> they would all yeah, go I'll for get, you like as many bites as everyone else combined i need to be friends with you because yesterday <laughs> that was that was me at the barbecue at our friend's place i had i think eight bites within the matter of 20 minutes not even and i had to leave the conversation because i was being eaten up alive do you use that uh, spray stuff that people use i'm not saying this to dismiss anyone but we had the western sprays and they didn't work <laughs> I spray I, my legs were covered <laughs> with chemicals, but it just didn't stop the mosquitoes from even coming close to me. But if we had the mugworts, mm-hmm. the grass, and um, usually like people would burn it, and it's not too pleasant of a smell for human beings either. But at the same time, the mosquitoes hate it. They would just stay away from any anything that's giving out that smell. So you mm-hmm. would be safe if you have that. And people also hang that on their door for the Dragon Bow Festival. Oh, really? Yes. This is a yes. new thing I've learned. I'm, I'm, thank you for that because I'm always looking for like stuff like that that are associated with uh, festivals and things. I was actually learning about Dragon Boat Festival. I did not learn that one. Mm. I found is a Chinese calligraphy, which makes total sense because that is the entire writing system kind of, but it means more of the art of painting it like with a brush, Mm. not just writing with a pen or a pencil. So this is 2009 China registered and uh, preserved Chinese calligraphy. You know, you see in, in so many varieties expressed in Chinese culture, because you have the elderly people go outside with the big, huge brushes, bucket of water yeah, and the bucket of water, and they paint it on the ground and as they're writing the poem they're right the poem starting to evaporate from the other end oh can i just say that's just so poetic and so romantic for me <laughs> like oh my god because they're all writing some like really sophisticated uh you know po- uh, poetry from chinese literature and as you were watching them putting in because it takes a lot of work first mm. off to know how to write those characters 
to practice your calligraphy art. And it takes more work that you're not writing with a brush. You're writing with a giant <laughs> brush that you have to mm. move with your arms. It's not like just a brush in your pen anymore. And as you're writing down with all of the efforts behind being able to do that on the ground, and it makes it more visible to more people, but they don't stay on the ground for a very long time. They go away. They disappear. And I was like, oh, my God, there's so much Zen in mm. this. So a lot of respect for those people, but I can't do, I can't do it. So many different aspects of Chinese culture. It's everywhere. Like, uh, for example, for people who, I think most people know that Chinese folks have a tendency of hanging very short, like uh, couplets around their doors at different times of the year for different reasons to bring luck and fortune to the family. Mm. So do you, do you, are you able to paint with a brush and do Chinese calligraphy? <laughs> I did learn Chinese calligraphy when I was a kid. And this is, again, like I would love to be able to take people to calligraphy masters and to have them listen to the calligraphy masters to talk about calligraphy in their understanding, because it's not just about uh, maybe because I've never learned uh, mm. Chinese ink painting or any other way of painting. I can't draw. I can't mm. paint mm. For, for the life of me. But I did learn calligraphy every way. Basically, they have a whole system. They have a whole explanation system of as detailed as to why each stroke in that style is written that way. Like, for example, let's say a, an average Chinese character has about maybe seven to eight strokes and it's all it's made of the dash the bar and the dot and you know all of these strokes and there are different schools of calligraphies in china and when we were kids we were just kind of like i mean we didn't we weren't choosing uh which school we we're going to follow subjectively but when we did then our teacher would be like this is why you want to round the dot and you want to bring it back to where the tip of your brush started because it means like this person wanted to like this this is how the person the founder of this school of calligraphy looked at the world everything comes back to one so something wow. <laughs> yeah there's so much philosophy in it that's why i was like it's, i i learned it as a kid and then you really have to just control and they have uh, a lot of people will say like it's rigid like you don't have to do it exactly the same but through that process you really start to see things <laughs> it's it's kind of like buddhism you kind it's like kind of like when you're trying to understand what zen is <laughs> and when you're mm. Taking calligraphy classes, especially when you're a kid, you're not going to able to understand the meaning of life when you're writing, when you're learning calligraphy. But <laughs> it does practice, uh, helps you practice your patience a lot, like because it goes so slow. It takes so long to especially if you say uh, we say if you write uh, bigger characters and that takes a long time because mm. each stroke you have to go from like heavy to light, fast and slow and bringing it back. And then the strokes break, but your the momentum of your brush doesn't. There's so much, um, there's so many things that you have to think about and practice and make them become a part of you when you're writing your calligraphy. So like everybody's words reflect their personality and as to a point where there's a proverb in Chinese culture called um, uh, not a proverb, just a saying. 见字, uh, it's called um, Sorry, means that you're writing the way you're writing says a lot about the person that you are. Um, 
It's it, we used to really value that. I remember we we're in junior high school. We'd look at how good everybody's handwriting is, and we're like, we like this boy because he has good handwriting. He wow. doesn't have good. <laughs> yeah, it's like no, his his characters are ugly. We don't like him. Wow. Yes, it, it matters a lot for our teenagers. So. I'm surprised to hear that. Like all of the stuff before, I was like, oh wow, this sounds like one of those beautiful things about Chinese culture. And then you're like, this junior middle school. <laughs> I'm like, what? Really? I'm really surprised by that. I, we go in deep when we come out with something that's easy to understand for everybody. <laughs> you know, my wife and I were recently downtown Wuhan. I should say uh, Hanko. Mm-hmm. And uh, there was an exhibit and it was on calligraphy. And we went in. And what's really interesting is the calligrapher oh, wow. whose exhibit it was, was sitting there inside. And he was he was still like painting. And he was using an older form of the characters. And I don't mean like a couple centuries ago. I mean, like thousands, a couple thousand years ago version of the characters, you know, that really old version. Oh, where it's like almost like the, I, the turtle okay. bone level of original character. Yes, I know that. You know, it's really interesting in the uh, National Museum in Beijing, they have some of the mm. actual like bones, the original bones, and they used to the origin of Chinese characters, as far as I know, and I could be wrong, so you <laughs> feel free to correct me, is they used to write certain symbols and characters that had meaning on them and then fire them like put them in through fire yeah. and then they would examine how they came out of the fire and this would be a way to tell fortunes, tell fortunes. Yes. yeah that's really interesting i i had so much kind of speculations and my own understanding and my own way of trying to make sense of it i was like because back then probably what people needed to know the most was mm, about mm. weather or natural elements and how that's going to Will change. Will there be rain for the farm? Yeah. Right? And so that's why that when they burn it, the way that it cracks, it probably says about the, for example, the humidity and the temperature and the changes in whatever uh, chemicals or, or mineral elements in the earth that, you know, that's all part of everything. And like, like I said, back then people are, people don't have a scientific system in place to explain it um, and list out ABC, ABCD, but they just, it's, you know, that's how they that's how they got along with nature. Mm, mm. And that's nature's way of telling them what's going to happen. We could probably go on just about Chinese calligraphy for a very long time. <laughs> My wife actually really likes it. She practices sometimes, you know, occasionally every month or so she'll bust out the calligraphy and start like going at My it. My calligraphy said so it's already up on the shelf. We, we have it on the shelf, too. <laughs> it's like it's on top of the books bookshelf. I actually got a free one from winning some kind of speech competition, but I, I can't write oh, wow. Chinese characters at all. So, I mean, I can write like less than 50 characters with a pen. I'm not going to try to do it with a brush. So, <laughs> hey, maybe it'll open a new door for you. Maybe you're going to be the only one or at least one of very few expats in China who can't really write regularly, but they can do wow. calligraphy. Um, that's a dream for some foreigner. I'm not, I don't know. Not Jason. <laughs> I mean, you know, that that's not just like a small an investment. You're, we're talking about hundreds or thousands of hours to get good at that. So, yeah. That's true. That's true. I know. Okay. <laughs> oh, yeah. Dunhuang. Situated along the ancient Silk Road where fine arts and divine beliefs merged with the natural world. It's where the East and West interacted and where the world's largest Buddhist art gallery still fascinates and amazes people today. 
a place where stories of life and death, love and hatred, passion and desire, faith and sacrifice have been generated and told for 2,000 years. Dunhuang, a place born in legends. Buckle up for our new podcast, Why We Love Dunhuang, the one and only podcast that can take you to the fantasy world of Dunhuang and beyond through our audio tour. Listen and subscribe to the Why We Love Dunhuang podcast for free on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and all other major podcast platforms. Why We Love Dunhuang? You will have your answers. Listening to the bridge. The next one is Dragon Boat Festival, which you already mentioned, and we learned a little bit about yeah. the uh, moxie sticks. I guess you hang outside of your door for Dragon Boat Festival. Yeah, the mugwort uh, grass, or wow. however you call that. I actually celebrated Dragon Boat Festival for the first time in my life. Like everybody celebrates it in China, but it is a uh, festival that originated in uh, where you are. Um, so we had a, a friend who's from Wuhan and she, she was like, oh, I can't go back and celebrate it with my parents this year, but she wanted just to do the things that she used to as a kid. So we actually expanded our, uh, celebration categories from just eating the zongzi, which is the, the, you know, the dumpling, sticky rice dumpling mm, mm, to, mm. we made the, the bracelet, the five color, uh, string bracelet. And then we made, I made zongzi for the first time in my life. What, you, what did you put inside? We did, we did all kinds. We tried to cater to the different like mm. tasting palettes from the South and the North. And this is, this is one thing that's a little interesting, uh, funny to a lot of uh, Chinese folks because oh, yeah. there's a major difference between Southern and Northern cuisine. I'm sure you've heard about these kind of silly rivalries. Well, not just about, I learned so much about Zongzi this year. And apparently there's like a hundred different kinds of Zongzi. Yeah. I only knew growing up, I only knew the zones with the, the dates in it and it's regular dates. Mm. It's not like the sweetened or, or caramelized dates because uh, that's that's for northern people. For some reason, we like sticky rice sweet. We don't like sticky rice salty. But in this, well, you know, before you continue, yeah. let's just for our listeners who don't know what we're talking about. This is a sticky rice that is inside usually like a bamboo leaf or can be other kinds of leaf. Yeah. And then, then it is like cooked with the leaf around it and gives it a very specific flavor and in the in the middle you can put different things and in the south sometimes it's meat which i i was like i ate my first meat songs i was like wow this is i like songs now yeah <laughs> it is really an acquired taste not a lot of experts love mm, the taste mm. of, of sticky rice just in general but i felt like if you're familiar with southeast asian desserts in thailand they really like uh mango and sticky rice and they use mm. a lot of sticky rice as well if you're kind of already accustomed to that then it's easier for you to accept songs but for a lot of people who just come to China 
um, if this is their first experience with Asian country cuisine, it's a little, I, the texture could be a little off-putting mm. for people. But like Jason said, you could put all kinds of stuff in it. And something that I knew started to accept in recent years was to put meat in the middle of the sticky rice. And that's a tradition in the mm. in the South. They just put meat <laughs> in everything. They put the, In the South, they put meat in, in zones. They put meat, meat in the mooncakes. It's really like in the beginning, it was such an odd concept to me. I was like, what? Zongzis are supposed to be sweet. Yeah, that's what I thought, too, because in Beijing. Right. We dip it in, in sugar. Yeah. And then people are like, no, it's salty and savory. I'm like, odd. And then I tried it. I was like, OK, fine. I like it now. I think it both can be very good. What is red bean paste? The first one I had was red bean paste in Beijing. And I was like, that's good, too. Well, I, I'm not a huge fan of that. So when I had it, I was like, in my head, I'm thinking last time. Oh, and then uh, I. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then I, I had it here. It was made by the cook at the place I work where they were just passing them out for you. Like, here's a Zongza. And I was like, oh, great. Yay, Zongza. Yeah. And then I ate it and I was like, oh, my gosh, this is so good. <laughs> OK, the red bean paste, Jason, I hate to tell you, it's kind of the soul for a lot of Chinese desserts. <laughs> mm. Yeah, I know it is. We it is. love so red many bean different paste. candies and stuff. Is It has that in it. Yes. But yeah, we, we made Zongza for the first time. So we did sweet dates. We did buy the red bean paste. But so for some reason, that didn't happen. We had mushrooms and then we had the pork one, the meat one in the in, in the middle of the zones. And we made different shapes as well. Actually, one of our friends who's German, um, he's been here for two years. He went to he actually made <laughs> out of everybody at the party. He made the most beautiful ones. Oh, yeah. Like, yeah, he was so much better than all of us Chinese people because <laughs> he went to a class that, uh, that, that taught people how to make songs. So he made four really beautiful ones and we're like, oh, well, we're just going to eat it. Like, we can't make it. We're just going to eat it because we couldn't we couldn't make the shape because it's a um, triangular it's kind of a triangle. It's a, what would you yeah. just call that? Like a triangular it, cuboid or something? Some Yeah, it's very it's very odd. Um, not odd, but it's just hard to shape. The ones that he made was more like kind of a little tube, like squished a little bit because you have to tie it. Elegant. Yeah. You have to tie it. The way he he tied his zones was very, was very elegant, very tidy. Mm. We were like, okay, we have how many? We have four balls of uh, strings. Let's just make sure that this thing doesn't leak. So <laughs> our zones look like hostages in the hot water. And his were just, his were just beautiful. Well, I want to talk just a tiny bit about Dragon Boat Festival itself, not just the <laughs> zones. I went to see Dragon Boat Racing here in Wuhan. Uh-huh. And I looked at a, a list of where it was supposed to be held that was from 2012. And it showed the East Lake. So I, in a very specific place in the East Lake. Mm-hmm. So I went to that specific place of the East Lake in Wuhan and I found out when we got there, that's not where they were holding the dragon boat racing. They were holding it somewhere totally different and I had missed it. So my wife and I were like kind of broken about that. Strolling around that area, we found a memorial to Chu Yuan. Yes. This poet from, I guess, the first or second, third century in China who took his own life by throwing himself into the water. Of Milo. Uh <laughs> Yeah, yeah. And he did succeed in taking his own life uh, because the emperor was not listening to him. And there are different versions of that story. So I'm not going to tell it because they're actually not just one version of that story. But 
one of traditional ways to understand this, the people, the local people were very upset that he killed himself yes. and raced out to throw Zongse, this food that we've been t- discussing, into the water to prevent the fish from eating his body. Yes. So the one interesting that I learned, this Dragon Boat Festival, um, basically it's because, you know, the, everybody was asking the very few Chinese people at the, at the celebration were like, oh, why is it a, a festival that's mainly celebrated in the north, in the south, and not so much in the north? And so, basically, every city that is on the Milo River, where this poet threw himself in, those cities all have long-running traditions of celebrating this festival specifically. And I learned this thing from again, not a Chinese <laughs> friend, another expert. <laughs> like, how do you, the well? But it makes sense because it's about the word English. Actually, he said the word. Mm. Dumpling is how people call zongzi, like as far as he knows, because if you think about the word, it's when you dump this thing into the river. Really? Yeah. And I, I would love to fact check on this and I would love to have an episode of <laughs> English. We need the etymology. Right? We would love to have an episode of English words uh, that are about Chinese culture mm. or anything related to China. Mm where those words started, where they came from. Yeah, that's a really great idea for a future episode. I did write that down. You know, I learned about Dragon Boat Festival in San Francisco. So there's another part of this, I guess we should have talked about. There are actual races where they line up a series of athletic people who've been practicing (laughs) and they get in dragon long boats that have dragon heads on them. And someone beats the drum while everyone rows as fast as they can. And they compete with one another to see whose dragon boat can, I guess, get to a particular point in the lake Mm. first. And so it's a race. And you know, what's interesting when you look up the history of dragon boat racing is it's been going on around this same time from before Chuyuan. So like early history of where the racing came from predated Chuyuan himself and Chuyuan's Mm. his history got kind of like combined with the the tradition of racing at this time of year mm. late, later on. I mean, they said it's one of the uh, explanations or one of the stories of how it started was that after Chuan, uh, you know, threw himself in the river, people were trying to stir up the water with the, the pedals so that the, the fish could stay away from Chuan. His body doesn't get eaten up by the fish. But there are, there are a lot of different ways of saying why. Dragon Boat racing is one of uh, the most important ways of celebrating the festival. But my friend from, mm-hmm. who's from, she's from uh, Wuhan and Chongqing. Mm. So she growing up celebrating this festival. And she did tell me, she said that every year during the Dragon Ball Festival for um, for her, at least it was, like you said, it's a whole bunch of really, really athletic people and it's a really serious sports and there are colleges that have their own Dragon Boat racing teams. Oh, wow. And I was like, oh, so this is the punting of uh, Southern China. <laughs> like, you know how in um, in uh, the UK they do this punting thing or like in the United States, there's mm. like rowing yeah, is yeah, a rowing. serious collegiate sports <laughs> in China is Dragon Boat racing. I was like, well, yes, in that case, we kind of win with aesthetics because you have to decorate the boats. <laughs> yeah, it's really lovely. And they, they do it at San Francisco. So even like outside of China, Chinese people have carried on this tradition. Like, mm. so it, that's one of the reasons that it is a culturally protected heritage that is actually when these things are registered with UNESCO yeah. festival itself becomes culturally protected by the United Nations. I don't know what to extent or how that works, but it becomes something that like yeah. is officiated part of the United Nations. Oh, yeah. 
2,500 years ago, an old man rode on his buffalo and headed west of China. Before he vanished into the wild, he left behind a book of 5,000 words, which for the next two and a half millennia would have shaped the Chinese way of thinking. Subscribe to the sayings of Lao Tzu and find out why generals with wisdom yield after winning the ultimate battle and how staying behind just might help you get ahead of others. The sayings of Lao Tzu is available on all major podcast platforms. You're listening to The Bridge. I want to talk a little bit about not just about China really quickly. I want to spread our bridge to other cultures. So I looked at mm. the list because there are more than 100 yes. nations that have something protected by UNESCO. And I looked at something for France. I was just mm. curious. OK, let's just choose a European country at random. And one of the things that they preserved for them was the cultivation of perfume plants, the knowledge and processing of natural raw materials and the art of perfume composition. I chose this one because it was France specifically, mm. but some of the other ones that France, it's like France and Holland or France and Germany. So they're actually mm. sharing cultural uh, heritage preservation with other nations. And so yeah. it's really interesting. I looked at the US, there was nothing. So I was like, is that- It's a young country. It's a young country, but certainly there must be something that they can preserve. I don't know. Mm. Like uh, blowing stuff up. But I, I mean- <laughs> Ow, that one. No, that I mean, like, I wasn't talking about. I wasn't talking about war. I was talking about the, you know using for mines or like uh, I don't know. Oh, okay, okay. Wearing your cowboy belt a certain way <laughs> with like the holster. I don't know. You like, know, like maybe in 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 I don't know in another two hundred years, pardoning the the turkey on Thanksgiving. Could be. <laughs> yeah, exactly. There you with go. With that wishbone. <laughs> It's like, oh, maybe taking the wishbone out of the turkey can become something culturally important. But maybe that comes from somewhere else. I don't know. So it's really interesting. I love museums and I don't feel like, I, I don't know, maybe I'm being snobbish. I feel like museums are not something most people like and that I'm like <laughs> nerdy for liking um, museums. Am I wrong? I will say that as, as a matter of fact that there are the you know, the, the, the audience size of museums are definitely not as big as some other ways of, I don't want to call it leisure time, but <laughs> you know, something that you voluntarily choose to do when you're not worried about survival. Yeah. Brunch. Brunch is more popular than museums. <laughs> I feel like, Hey, maybe brunch will become a culture heritage for America <laughs> in like I feel that's years. gotta be British or something like just sitting down and having second but, breakfast. But America has, America has taken it to the next level like there are so many places that are just brunch spots and there's a culture into it and the kind of food that is made i don't know maybe if they just strung up a, some stuff all together and they, and they apply with unesco maybe they'll say yes who knows you know i did not take the entire list of all of the things that uh china has preserved because it would, we would not be able to get through that i know but i wanted to ask you as a you know a chinese person <laughs> is there some aspect of chinese culture tradition Traditional Chinese mm. culture that you are particularly fond of? Uh, I love the traditional Chinese, like classical Chinese dance. Mm. Is there a particular variety? So the one that I like is just called Zhongguo Gudian Wu, which literally translates into Chinese classical dance. Mm. So that type of dance is very much focused on representing, not 
recreating, uh-huh. presenting again, presenting again, <laughs> yeah. like recreating how people in ancient China carry themselves when they walk, when they point, when they read, when they drink with an artistic dancey reading into it so that when people study mm. that type of dance, you spend a long time learning how to even look like how to look from point A to point B and how to like look up a little bit and then which kind of um, how your hands show mm. emotions. I don't I, I think it's I understand. so exquisite. It's super exquisite for me. I feel like you're talking about like sometimes ladies are represented in the courtly TV shows. Mm, yes, yes. It's part of it has some uh, associations uh, share something, you know, when they're asked to walk in a certain way, when they ask to greet and bow in a certain way. And that definitely shows in, in the in the dance itself. I just love that. I, I love that so much. In a way, it's a little bit similar to how uh, to the training of a picking opera artist. Mm. Yeah. And, you know, they have to do all of those as well, but <laughs> picking opera is a little bit too much singing. And <laughs> I love picking opera. I've been like half a dozen times, you know, when you were talking, I actually thought about picking opera mm-hmm. because there is a part in one of the plays I saw, which was like 20 minutes long where one lady was just pretending to open and close windows and walk around in her bedroom. And it was, I, I really <laughs> liked it. It was amazing how expressive she was that you knew exactly what part of her room she was in, yeah. and what she was holding and what she was doing. And it was 20 minutes of her just moving with quite kind of music music playing. It was just remarkable. Yeah, I think the thing is like this reminds me, this kind of echoes what we talked about calligraphy earlier. A lot of traditional Chinese arts really focus on or they're really built around kind of not just the patience, but the willingness to appreciate something with everything you can do around it. Like if I could write a poem about the moon, I could write like 3000 words just about the moon and it'll come out as something that's very infectious. Like you wouldn't, you would love to hear that. I think that's probably why people still love to watch Mm. picking opera, even though sometimes one note goes on for like a minute. But I did have a, a like a quick obsession period with it when I tried to listen to it. And I want to get all the turns and the runs right. Mm. You know how people talk about R&B and stuff, you know, and there are so many like when people do the runs and when they do the turns, we were like, yes, that's so amazing. Mm. I'm like, try and go picking opera <laughs> where you can't just mm. run over the turns. You have to like remember exactly what each note little twists are. And it goes on for so long. Oh, my God. Mm. I used to try to do that, but um, it, it didn't take me any. So I stopped. You know, what's really interesting about you saying that is we were talking about, you know, master and disciple yeah. kind of relationships earlier, mentor, mentee. Those people definitely go through years and years of like rigorous yeah. training to be able to perform a particular role in a particular play. It's so specialized. Sometimes the same person will do the same role for 40 or 50 years. Yes. Yes. There are a couple classical ones. If, if, um, you know, if you're listening to us, there are a couple of classic Chinese uh, picking opera shows, picking opera, picking operas. Sorry. Um, one of them is the uh, very classic, White snake and green snake story. Mm. Um, I'm sure you heard of it. There is the one about 
the female Chinese general, uh, Mu Guiying. Mm, if you could, if mm. you could look it up, I've seen that one. If you have, oh, I'm I'm yet to see yeah, it. Yeah, I, I would love to see that because it's like a whole show, whole opera of just female female generals, like military generals from uh, like hundreds of years ago in China, and how they kind of conquer. Um, and just win in life in general. So I would love you to. You know, I think we should do a whole uh, other episode about traditional Chinese culture because I think we are not at the end of this discussion, but we are at the end of our time. I wanted to tell people more, Jason. I'm sorry, Alex. <laughs> We're actually a little over time. Yep. It's always a great pleasure talking with you. Likewise, Jason. Please listen to our next episode for more insights and be part of bridging the East and West. Thank you for listening. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.